Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Frank Cianciulli took a self-funded teleconferencing business and grew it to around $14.5 million in revenue before he attracted the interest of an acquiring firm and ultimately exited just five years after starting it. Now, I had the privilege of talking to Frank about how he prioritized culture and employees during that five-year period and how that focus led him to selling the business for around $30 million. Now, one of the things you're going to get from this episode is that Frank is clearly a natural-born entrepreneur, and that instinct really helped him start multiple businesses after his successful exit from Enunciate Conferencing. As someone who has a focus on nurturing ideas and connecting people and ultimately growing business to help them scale, Frank is well-positioned to talk about the intricacies and challenges of scaling a company. Now involved with the Wish Group, Frank is constantly looking to invest in, acquire, or spin off companies with the right potential. It was such a pleasure interviewing this inspiring guest. This is Frank Cianciulli. Hello, Frank. Welcome to the show. Well, pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you making the time. I'm, I'm really excited to listen to your story and unpack it and have a bit of a chat about your background and history. As, um, I, I am going to say I'm, I've cheated a little bit here in that I, I have heard a bit of your, one of your previous podcasts. So uh, in some way, I feel like I know you a little bit. Um, so maybe that's a bit weird. But <laughs> Frank, you, um, I know we're going to get to talking about your company, Enunciate Conferencing, which um, according to my notes here, you, know, you, you built from a standing start to, to basically an eight-figure exit in about six years, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal story that I'm really keen to unpack with you. But I'm keen to explore, you know, a little bit about where your entrepreneurial journey started because, you know, I look at your LinkedIn, you know, you're, you're the chairman and CEO of something like six different companies at the moment. So clearly this is in your blood. And I'm just curious, like, where did this journey start for you? Oh, man. So after about seven years of psychoanalysis, I think I've got a few answers, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, iron ironically, Simon, you know, um, once I actually started Unsafe Conferencing, which is which was back in 2001. So, I mean, we celebrated 20 years of kind of being an entrepreneur officially. Um, but what's funny is once you start a business, especially when you have some success, you then start looking back and saying, where did this come from? And you then realize that, oh, my gosh, hold on. When I, I'm thinking back in grade one now in grade two, cleaning lawns, you know, uh, newspaper routes. You then kind of come to this epiphany that, wow, maybe maybe it was always there in my blood where, you know, I always had this desire to you know solve a problem and, and try to monetize it even as, as, a, as a young person. And um, as far as like multiple, I don't like using the word serial, but but yeah, clearly, you know, clearly I like to have, you know, a, a, a few things on the go. Um, but more so because, um, you know, as I as my journey evolved and I realized that, you know, I can only really be in one place at one time. There's only one company I can operate. And ironically, really, Enunciate was the only company I, I truly operated myself. After that, I just really became, um, I'll call it, call it CEO, CEO, chairman, owner, but really mentor uh, to, to the actual presidents that I you know, would, would um, you know, bring along either, you know, through our system or, you know, or met them through a pitch. Um, and um, so, you know, it becomes kind of, I don't know if addictive is the right word, um, but it's, uh, it's exhilarating, especially when others start having success, you know, and that's probably the, 
you know, the biggest epiphany that I had as an entrepreneur uh, in creating that company. And, you know, when the vision starts to become a reality is the impact it has on others' lives. So that's where I guess the, um, the desire to continue to expand and grow comes from not so much for, you know, myself anymore. I mean, listen, we, we, none of us, I think will turn down any extra money or, or growth, but, uh, but really at this point, um, my focus is, is turn turning to others. And by default, you know, I get more of what I want as well. And it's yeah. very satisfying. No, look, that's, that's great. And it's, uh, and I agree with you. I mean, seeing other people achieve success and reach new levels is, uh, it's pretty intoxicating. So, um, and and I'm curious too. So, um, were there? Did you come from a family of entrepreneurs? Was there was there other people that were sort of modeling this type of behavior for you? Yeah. So that's what's interesting is, is you know because you know you sit there and analyze a little bit about your parents, kind of realize how you know how did you know where did these kind of skills or um, come from, um, and uh, sort of um, both my parents um, got into real estate. Um, you know, both on the brokerage side and kind of going out there and selling and also then as a, you know, as investors and, and, and you know, um, buying and selling properties and keeping investment, you know, income properties, that sort of thing. Um, but I think what what I got most from both of them is my dad was a, was uh, was trained as a mechanic. So he was an auto mechanic. And then, well, I guess about 1980, you know, he's about 27 years old and decides to get his real estate license, which, you know, that's a big adjustment. You know, it, you know, you're going from, you know, wearing blue overalls every day. And I remember, you know, uh, I was very young, but I remember him, you know, waking up and it was still dark outside and he'd go out and come back late at night and he'd be dirty versus when he, became, you know, got into real estate and he's suiting up in, you know, really fancy suits all of a sudden. And, um, you know, he, he improved himself and, and same with my mom, you know, she was kind of a bank teller. And then um, after he did, then she went and got her license and, you know, went from just, you know, okay, just do a bit of sales to all of a sudden she had a portfolio, 40, 50 uh, properties, which was, you know, I was very proud of them. And, you know, as a young kid, I remember going to my dad's office, you know, no one to babysit me. So I would just kind of tag along and go to the office or my mom would even take me to offer presentations. That's where I learned the most as a, as a young lad, you know, the back and forth and negotiating. And I enjoyed it. You know, oftentimes I'd go to, I'd go to, uh, you know, a presentation with my mom and there'd be kids there, right? Right. The other kids, my age, I say, you know, go play with the other kids. I'm like, no, 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 I want to, I want to hear this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just love being part of the action with the adults. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. It's uh, it's funny. You're, you're giving me a flashback to going to uh, one of these factories that my dad worked in for a while. And, and I'm remembering how they let me use as I was about seven years old. They let me use one of the big industrial shredders, right? And I'm putting in all this carbon. And I think back to this now, like there was, nobody supervised me. Nobody, you know, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, man. Like, and, uh, yeah, it would, wouldn't fly today, but uh, yeah, interesting stuff. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious too, like, you know, you've, you've clearly got some uh, wonderful parents who've, you know, really worked hard and demonstrated some fabulous sort of uh, behaviours and traits for you too. So, so how old were you when you, when you started Enunciate, if you don't mind me asking that? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I was 27, and 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 the story of an unsafe is interesting. Again, going back to my parents because um, I was only child, and and um, I don't know. I guess it was grade eight, you know, 13 years old. You know, one of the teachers says, "Hey, you know what? You got to start thinking about what you want to be when you grow up because you know you want to start choosing those courses in high school and then you know majoring in those." So I remember going home and asked my dad. I said, "Dad, they told me I got to you know I got to find I got to know what I want to do when I grow up. What do I want to be?" And he goes, "You want to be a lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he didn't even flinch. He says, "You want to be a lawyer." So I just put the blinkers on, and 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 you know the plan was to uh, finish. Well, when I was in university, I was um, you know the plan was to finish in December my undergraduate, and then you know save enough money that that previous summer to uh, to to then uh, you know go backpacking through Europe before starting law school in, in September. So I'd have an eight month uh, window there. But I, you know I wanted to earn my own money. I didn't want to, you know my dad to pay for my whole Europe trip. So the summer, um, that particular summer, I, I you know, because I was working odd jobs at like, you know, like pool boy and kind of that's at the, at the racquetball club and things like that. But I wanted to get a quote unquote real job uh, this particular summer. And I got a job in teleconferencing and sales. And it just suited me so well. Um, and I was finding success and it was intoxicating just being good at something. And, and the money was great. And I remember I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to carry on. I'm going to, because, you know, in September I was supposed to quit and I didn't. Um, so I ended up um, 
um, staying full time, finishing up my undergrad at night. So basically working nine to five and then classes were six to nine or seven to 10. So, I mean, you know, I was young and, uh, you know, my dad was already really nervous about this because he saw that I was getting, you know, you know, enjoying making money and he was afraid I wasn't going to go to law school. But within a few months of being at that company, I told my father, I said, listen, don't worry, I'm going to start my own conferencing company one day. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, he didn't forbid me. He didn't force me to quit. I mean, he was really concerned because uh, I, you know, I think he knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer at that point. Uh, but it was almost like I made that commitment that I'm going to do this. Um, so I was determined, you know, from I think about six months in, uh, I started April and by o- end of October, I was like, I'm going to start my own conferencing company. Problem was, uh, I'm a history political science major. I knew nothing about <laughs> you know, business or how to write a business plan or how to raise any capital, but I was determined, you know, and, and I spoke it and I was positive and I, I constantly was thinking about um, how I would do things different if it was my own company. So unfortunately, it took me five years from the day I wanted to, from when I actually got the money and we started a business. And I and that was uh, in September of 06. So I was 27, uh, or actually August 7th, to be exact. August 7th is when I quit uh, my job and started an unsafe conferencing in 2001. Wow, that must have been an exciting time. <laughs> For some reason, it was still scary, you know. I, I and I tell people all the time, and you know, you read on these, you know, social posts and entrepreneurs saying, "Oh, you're not really risking anything, and you can always get another job." Yeah, easy to say when you're, <laughs> you know, when you're just telling someone else to do it. But I was, I had a six-figure income as a young person, uh, you know, in in the '90s. Uh, all my friends were either, you know, still in school or making minimum wage, and I was, I was making six figures. So it, you know, I was dry. Yeah, bought myself a nice car, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was still scary. You know, um, I didn't want to fail. Yeah, it's absolutely. You're sort of throwing away your safety net and, uh, and, and taking the plunge. So, but, but, you know, failure wasn't an option, right? Like it was that kind of, let's just jump in this thing and let's do whatever it takes uh, to make sure, uh, you know, we're successful. And, and that's what we did. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I mean, you had five years experience, right? As you said, I, one of the, comments you just made a moment ago that I loved was that you you were constantly looking at ways that you would improve or the how you'd do it differently if it was your firm. And and I and I think it's that that is very much part of the entrepreneurial psyche, right? Is how can this be done better? You know, I don't I don't need to invent the next greatest thing. I just need to be able to do it better than everybody else. <laughs> so it's um yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting sort of part of it. When you launched, do, did you start the company on your own? Did you have any business partners? What what did that sort of look like? Yeah, so I had, um, I had, you know, I mentioned that I didn't, you know, didn't know how to get any money or, you know, um, I had met an individual named Tony Lacavera. He was, he was even younger than I was. He was 26, but he already had a company that he had started three years earlier called uh, Global Live. And, um, you know, he had some infrastructure and it looked like he had money, you know, he, he was, but he was still early stage. And, um, the synergies were there. And I thought, you know what, this guy would be a good guy to pitch on doing this with me. Um, so I pitched him and he basically got his friends and, and family to put money into the venture. But I operated the business. He, he uh, you know, he would he had his own company to run. But what was what was critical uh, is, is having access to him. You know, he had walked through the minefield, so to speak. So um, that accelerated our growth because, you know, being able to meet with him in person every week and talk to him anytime or send him notes or emails or texts. Um, we were able to navigate um, obstacles that might have slowed us down. Uh, and then I also had a couple of guys that I had worked with at that company that I immediately kind of took uh, took with me. And um, yeah, so there definitely was uh, a lot of camaraderie. It didn't feel like I was doing this alone. I, you know, one lesson I've learned when I look back and see some of the companies that have done extremely well, um, you know, versus the ones that maybe struggled a bit or maybe even didn't make it. It's always important to have a running mate, I find. It's just so much easier when there's at least two, as long as they get along. I mean, you also hear about nightmares and partners and all that kind of stuff. But as long as they get along and, the, and, the, and you know, because when one of them is positive, um, you know, the, and the other one can carry the person who's negative and vice versa. If one of them's down, the other guy can lift them up, you know, so it, it just it, it's scary. You know, it's starting a business is scary. I don't care, you know, how much money you got or how much experience you have. There's always a bit of fear and anxiety. There should be. Yeah you know, to, to be successful. And so I always found that, uh, you know, having, uh, someone to run with is, is that, you know, got the same passion is very important. 
Unfortunately, I had that with Enunciate, right? It was magic. Everything just kind of fell into place. That's brilliant. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, whether it's ups or downs, it's nice to have somebody there with you, right? So, and so that's curious. So you, you went in with some partners. I'm fascinated with how these kind of relationships get started and evolve. Um, and, and you mentioned the thing about partnerships sometimes not going the right way. And, you know, I guess with our firm exit advisory group, we, we see a lot of that. You know, we see where partners have split or, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. But did, did you guys um, at the beginning, were there any sort of discussions around, well, what are we trying to achieve? Where do we want to go? What does maybe an eventual exit look like? Yeah, you know what we did? And that's where I found there was a little bit of a discrepancy there. Like you, one of my operating, well, my main operating partner, you know, he was, uh, I guess he's about 16 years older than me. So he had a different phase in life. So he always thought, you know, let's, let's, let's build it and sell it within five years. I was thinking more of, you know, that would pass his business on to my grandchildren. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. fascinated with multi-generational and family businesses. I don't know why I just am. Um, and um, I mean, we ended up selling in five years, but uh, not because of that. But, but yeah, and, and that, but I think, so for me though, because I was focused on building it for the long haul, I use the analogy of building a home. You know, there's people that are like, they're into the specu- they speculate with homes, right? So they buy a home and they just put lipstick rentals on it. They don't think, do things right and they just flip it. I'm more of the, the, the mind when building a business and I'm building that business as if I'm building that home that I want my grandchildren to live in it one day. Now, if someone knocks on my door and says, hey, I really want to buy this home because this is a really solidly built home, then I'm going to get top dollar and then I have, you know, then I have a, a difficult decision to make. But I don't, I, I don't like the, con- it's just not me. It's just, I, I don't like going into businesses with the sole purpose of selling them and just raising capital and flipping it. It's just not, it doesn't work for me. I'm not saying that's not good. You know, I've seen a lot of, obviously a lot of, especially tech companies and companies that create a lot of wealth that way. But I'm more of that old school uh, entrepreneur. I, I just, I just like building. I'm not an, I'm not an inventor either, right? I'm just kind of the guy that likes to just build a, just build a better mousetrap. Just you know, find some issues in the marketplace, maybe see you know, see some sectors in the market that some of the big players or my competitors aren't really addressing and they're not really good at and I'll hit that niche and and try and be the best at that particular niche that I can be and then hopefully, you know, that'll well, hopefully the business will grow and that somebody will then you know, want to reward me or purchase that business because that's something valuable to them. But if not, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with keeping building businesses and hopefully taking out profits. And um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, having lots of uh, people that are, are living off a company. I mean, yeah, that's what's wonderful about a company versus or a business or over any other asset. I mean, I know real estate's awesome, but real estate's not alive. A company is a living being. People live off, off a company. Even if the business breaks even, you have a thousand employees, it's a thousand people making a living. That's lots of clients getting good value from what you do. That makes a business more special than anything else, in my opinion. But it's unique. Not everybody can run one, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a really cool perspective on it. It's, um, yeah, you, you're helping families, right? So t- tell me a little more about Enunciate. Maybe can you give us a bit of an overview of, I mean, Enunciate conferencing? I think most people will probably sort of have a bit of a stab guess at what it is. But can, can you just talk us through what kind of business was it? What did it look like? Where, what was its model? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things. I think we we were we were unique, uh, first to market, um, and as far as even just the growth model back then, you know, back in I guess the '90s, and then we started in 2001. Most conferencing companies, well, a lot of telcos like a Bell Canada or Telus or AT and T, all of those would provide conferencing. So you know, someone would want a conference call, they probably wouldn't know any different. They would just hit zero, <laughs> ask the operator, set them up with a conference call. And then there was companies like ours that were formed to specifically, it's all we did was, was do conferencing. But because of the margins, because of the way business was done back then, you'd have these kind of senior account managers, and then you'd have maybe someone who would set up appointments for these, for these people, and they would go out and close the deal, a lot of schmoozing, you know, kind of an old school model. We kind of did away with that. We, at that, we went really, um, you know, heavy with kind of um, really just, and, and, so, and they would have sales reps in every city across North America. Yep. You know, so everything was done face to face, even though we were selling collaboration and, <laughs> and conferencing. Why would you need if I if I need to come and see you? Isn't that isn't that kind of contradicting my technology? But anyhow, so we we we, we decided, no, no, we're going to have everybody just just on the phone 
use the conference call feature to sell the conferencing. So we did it all from from Toronto and we did it in kind of, you know, again, most of the competitors, they would in these big towers downtown, more of a traditional office space where we went in the more brick and bean, more of a tech vibe, I would say. Okay. Kind of more of that uh, Y2K tech tech vibe. And and so and really focused on culture. So and, uh, you know, of all the awards we won as far as the fastest growing and the best managed and all that kind of stuff, the ones we're most proud of is when we were you know, winning awards like best places to work and best managed company, that sort of thing. Um, because we really, we really focused on culture, like doing a lot of things together uh, with, with the employees. Um, and you know, everything from the branding was very unique back, back then, you know, any kind of, you know, if you looked at a website of, uh, of someone in the conferencing business, it would be pictures of a speaker phone and people in suits, you know, around a boardroom table. We did it completely different. We did more of the, uh, more of a lifestyle or connect, uh, you know, an emotional connection, which is not what you see. You know, we'd have pictures of people jumping up in the sky and stuff, which which was unheard of at the time. And we came out with more online uh, tools and more of a do-it-yourself model, you know, because back then, every time someone had a conference call, uh, someone's assistant would call, you know, in reserve, uh, you know, uh, and get a, a different phone number and a passcode every time, you know, where we came and said, no, no, that's more of a do-it-yourself model. It's giving you a number and a passcode, which even that now is old school. Um, but, <laughs> But that was and, and, and a lot of online reporting, online tools, um, which, again, back then you would just get a big, huge paper invoice, especially if you're a bank or you know law firm where we, we, uh, we enabled that all online. We were the first ones to do that. So that that definitely was an advantage from a service perspective. And to be honest, we just outworked everybody, Simon. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we had 40, 50 sales reps pounding the phones every day, making 100 dials a day. So that's, you know, 5,000 calls a day, you know, people hearing enunciate, 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 and us sending Christmas cards out and us doing, a, you know, really cool events, like even events, you know, maybe, maybe a competitor would do a golf tournament and invite their key clients. We, we held big art exhibits, you know, and, and had thousand, over a thousand people come and, and experience a really cool um, art, a fusion of different arts uh, where all of our staff got involved as far as serving food and, and, and you know, and drinks and getting to connect with people. So every touch point in our business um, was was really to give a, a subliminal message or a very covert uh, or a very overt message that we're creative and we and we put thought into everything we do. Yeah, that's cool. And that that was the secret sauce, I think, there, you know, to be honest, just out executed everyone. Just tried just a different spin on it. Now it's a little trickier. Um, you know, I think with a lot of the tech companies have been very into, into you know, creative in, in how they build businesses. And but back then, that was that was kind of leading edge, ironically. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think it's, we, we all see the sort of shifts um, in workplaces and just sort of social dynamics of people we work with, right? And it's as you say, constantly evolving. You know, tech companies seem to be the the poster childs for for this sort of new environment these days. But it sounds like you were very much in there with a, the, this kind of Focus on culture first, which, you know, I don't need me saying this, you know, how many studies out there point to saying that's just something that gives an edge to a company. So um, I think that's really cool. I'm curious, you know, for, for people like myself who are listening, who are not all that sort of techie, um, you know, I'm very used to jumping on Zoom or Teams these days and, you know, everything's kind of through the browser and in the cloud and whatever. Did, did, was your business sort of very infrastructure sort of heavy at the time did you need to have lots yeah. of equipment yes yes um we call them or i guess they still exist but not not many of them out there anymore we call them audio bridges which was kind of like uh, a hotel for phone lines <laughs> right okay basically right so let's say you had you, you, know, you could have i don't know you know hundreds of conference calls taking place at the same time the average conference call let's say had five participants so you had to have enough actual audio ports for all the concurrent users. Wow. Okay. So there was a barrier to entry, you know, and uh, since then, um, because some major players had scale and they had all this infrastructure and they had some, some off peak times, then, then a reseller model started to evolve where people would say, you know what, I don't need to, why reinvent the wheel and buy all these ports? I'll just, you know, I'll just call a competitor and, and uh, have a wholesale buy rate and, and then a sell rate. Because ultimately the client is the client is really where the relationship was. We weren't really building anything unique. I mean, Microsoft did, you know, when, when or you know, Cisco with WebEx when Cisco bought WebEx, 
uh, Adobe ha- has a web tool, and then you had you know the web, then you had the streaming um, players come into the market as well. So you guys basically resold a lot of that service, is that right? Like, or did you actually have to own that infrastructure? No, Anunciate had so had its own audio. We were we were facilities based from the conferencing perspective, but we resold the web stuff. So we, you know, the web we would, you know, I think we dealt with everybody. So everyone at the time would have been Adobe, you would have been uh, WebEx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so you must have. I mean, you must have seen the technology changing through this time, right? I mean, was that was that a concern to you about the future of the business? Or was it just something that you guys knew you'd evolve with? I mean, well, I got I got in the business in 1995, and I remember in 1995 them saying, you know, or just I, you know, we'd be talking in the boardroom, what have you, and say, oh, you know, what, video is going to completely replace audio. Our conferencing business is going to die in a couple of years. Well, 25, 26 years later, that's kind of I think the pandemic kind of really officially finally, <laughs> but had a good it had a 25 year run longer than anybody expected. Um, for some reason in, in collaboration, people just didn't really, and I even think now there's a bit of already Zoom fatigue. It gets to the point where it's like, I don't necessarily need to see everyone all the time on my screen. Right? Like, and a lot of people don't want to actually put their cameras on. Um, but obviously it's convenient to have the app on your phone or, or what have you. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, but people would, you know, we had companies that would spend, you know, you know, six figures to to build these elaborate video systems in their boardrooms and, you know, big screens and mics, you know, built into the boardroom tables. And they would just collect dust. No one used them. <laughs> but now, I think now, obviously, the technology is there. It's so easy to use, right? Hop on a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams call. It's definitely, it's definitely convenient now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the it's so cost effective now. So, uh, we're still in that uh, business, but um, nowadays we're we're doing more of the high touch stuff, and we're more on the webinar side as as far as our collaboration investments go. Yeah, cool, cool. That that is funny about all that equipment. I don't know how many offices I've been into over the years, and you go, oh wow, this is interesting. They go, yeah, we're not even sure if that works. We've not seen anyone use that in ages. <laughs> So, so what did tell, talk to me a bit about the growth of the company? Um, you know, you're sort of in business for five or six years. Or so, um, what, what did the growth trajectory look like, and where did it get to before you sort of ultimately exited? Yeah, I was Simon. I just I get I get nostalgic and 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 uh, and proud because um, you know in in our world and what we did at that time, it's not a it wasn't a big revenue business, but a high margin business. But our our growth was uh, pretty exceptional for basically being self funded. Um, we were profitable almost immediately. But you know for, even from so year you know year one we would have done um, you know one point one million, then we went from all the way from one point one to four point five to seven point five to eleven and a half to fourteen and a half, and then. Um, we sold. Um, we sold exactly sixty-one months after we we started the company. It's exactly five years. Wow! And that so that fifth year we would have made you know five five and a half million in profit, and we sold the business for I think around thirty million cash on the barrel, which was you know it's pretty life changing, pretty quick. Yeah. Back then, you know, I know there's tech companies that have bigger and quicker, but especially conferencing, like, you know, there's companies that, you know, even up until recently that started around the same time that never got past a million or 2 million. And, and the owners are making a nice living, you know, 75, 80% margin business. But uh, so what we did was, was exceptional. And, and, uh, to, and, 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 you know, we could even fuel it even grow quicker. I mean, looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I reinvest those profits and even more growth and maybe sold even for a bigger, a bigger amount. But yeah, that hindsight can be punishing. <laughs> Yeah, and we other, we we did other things, you know. We we um, and I accidentally, you know, evolved into other businesses. You know, it wasn't it wasn't really a strategic plan. It, you know, it, I remember we were building our company, and as we were growing, I would hire everyone that I knew that would come over from uh, the company that I had worked at, or some competitors that you know, it was people that I just knew and met at trade shows. And after I ran out of everyone that I knew, you know, I had I had uh, I had a friend of mine who was a rec- recruiter. Uh, that I knew from high school. And I says, Hey, you know, I, we need to hire some people. So we were hiring so many people every month. We'd, you know, three, four people. And, and, you know, one day he came to see me and he says, I'm really inspired with what you built here. He's like, you know, you, you just started a couple of years ago and there's people everywhere and you expanding your offices. And he says, you know, I'm really, I'm really inspired. I want to, I want to start a staffing company with you. I says, me, I don't know anything about staffing. 
And he says, well, don't worry about that. I'll run the business. But if you can help me with the business plan and maybe a bit of money and, you know, if, hey, if you give me your business and, and, and incubate me a bit, let me let me use your marketing resources. Let me come to your holiday party, you know. Yeah. And um, that's when we started PeopleSource, which unrelated business. I thought to myself, well, you know, if I'm going to be in business, I'm, I guess I'm going to need people. And, you know, I knew he was good at what he did. So I figured, hey, why not? Uh, why not make the investment? And, and then PeopleSource had the same kind of trajectory that that enunciate did. And it was funny, you know, we'd go, we'd have a holiday party and, you know, they'd be one table of our, you know, our, our big banquet there. And, and then one day, you know, then people sort of started incubating other companies when they were large, but when they scaled quickly um, and they started winning all the awards, that's definitely where the light bulb went off in my head where I said, you know what, building a business is duplicatable. You know, you obviously you have to have the passion and the knowledge and build a team that's, you know, um, that wants to do that particular business versus what you know, what you know, but the, the recipe, the, the, the process is the same. You know, the ingredients might be different, but the process is the same. And so we just kind of kept going, you know, from that because it started to create belief as well. Because, you know, you'd, you'd see people, people would come into the company and they know and they would realize that, hey, my manager was two years ago sitting where I was. Or, oh, my gosh, that president of that company, that's like, oh, my God, they got 50 employees. That guy pitched Frank on doing a business only two years ago. You know, so it started to really create belief. And then people just started coming to my office and saying, hey, why don't we why don't we try this and why don't we do this? And, you know, I, I you know, not every one of them was a, was a success. But, you know, I, I would say, um, you know, most of the companies that we started not only survived, but they've thrived. I think we've had eight different, you know, kind of fastest or hottest startups, seven or eight different, you know, fastest growing companies. I think Wish Group's been 13, 14 years in a row. And on Canada's fastest growing companies. So, you know, we're not building, they're not billion dollar firms uh, yet, but we've definitely uh, created fast growth, uh, you know, ultra entrepreneurial companies and, uh, and we've created some great leaders. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I think too, the fact that you've got people coming to you and talking about this, these ideas and uh, I mean, that's this once again, I think just speaks to your culture and it's, you know, it's now it's gone beyond just one company. It is a group of companies. So it's, um, I think that's really, really cool. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you take a company like Enunciate and, and these other businesses for that matter. Uh, I'm curious about the evolution for you as a leader and your leadership teams. You know, you go from one, a one million company, like the kind of problems and things you're dealing with as a one million turnover company to a 14 million company, particularly in a short period of time. I mean, it's a different set of problems, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. and and. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny um, that, you know, that you have the first kind of challenge getting to a million, then the next big kind of milestone is that 10 million, then it kind of changes again, or 10 million, 50 employees, then you've got that kind of, you know, getting it from 10, if you can get it to 100, uh, and then a different problem there, you got to roll out different, um, you know, things change. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't want to call it bureaucracy, but you've got to have more controls in place. You just do, things have to be duplicated. You can't just rely on, on, on the leader. You've got to have leaders backed by leaders. You've got to have more delegation. You've got to have more uh, policies and processes and procedures. And so, you know, as that happens quick, that that's the key. I mean, quick growth is that, is learning how to scale it quickly and finding an entrepreneur that's, let's say, even never done it and and being able to do all those things. That in itself is incredibly hard. And for that person to do it quickly is even harder. So I'm proud of myself that I did that, although I had the help and I had the mentorship and all that. Um, but, you know, the, the key as you're scaling the business quickly and it, you know, is, is to, to know when to, and what type of people to bring in. It's not just simple saying, oh, you got to then, you know, your, your company's growing, so you got to go hire some big, big guns. Yeah, it's not that easy, you know, because someone coming from a big company might not adapt, even though they've done it before, they might not adapt to a truly entrepreneurial culture. Um, so that's where the art comes in um, to building a business. And that just takes a lot of thought. Even some luck, to be honest, Simon. I mean, you know, like if there's one thing that I pray for at the end of the day, because all I can control and what I tell everybody in the companies, all we can control is our action or attitude, right? Like, I mean, let's be positive, let's learn, and let's, you know, let's just outwork everyone. But you also, you also need to be blessed. You also need some luck. I don't care who you are. I, even these multi-billionaires and the bezels and the uh, all those, you know, the gates and all those guys, lots of luck in there. It has to be just like a championship team. Don't tell me how, watch any sport. Tell me the team that, that won the championship 
I mean, listen, I know a good percentage of the time it's the best team in the league, but how many times are they not? And even if they are the best team in the league that they played the best in the regular season, you know, did they not get lucky? Did they not get a call? And you look at Tom Brady, how his career started. It all started his first Super Bowl win with a bad call. He wouldn't, he should, you know, that could, who knows? Tom Brady may not have been Tom Brady. So you'd need luck. So the one thing that I pray for is just the right people to come into the company at the right time. Yeah. So, so, so in looking at that, I mean, I, I think there'll be people listening to this podcast thinking, okay, like I'm, I'm trying to grow and I'm trying to grow fast and I'm, I get that hiring challenge, right? So, yeah. And, and let's be honest, like I've interviewed and hired lots of people in my time and I find it challenging as well, right? Because people always put their game face on, they're doing an interview, you know? So, I, I don't know. Is there sort of like how do you cut through some of that kind of facade? Is there is there one or two qualities or features or things that you specifically look for, um, or that you've seen as a trait in the successful people you've you've brought on? For sure. I mean, it, it depends on what role. You know, salespeople are slightly different than 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 other areas. I really like you know people that that let's say we're we're in play you know like organized sports. Uh, know how to play, be a part of a team, got to watch egos. But it's, it's. I think there you can make some mistakes at the end of the day. And I know it still costs you money, but okay, you hire a sales guy and he kind of sucks. All right, you know, <laughs> or a marketer. But I think the bigger challenge is, is especially as a company really scales and you want to grow from, you know, you want to get to, because I think any owner operator, as long as they came from a business they understood, um, you could probably get it to that, you know, get to that three to five million and even 10, just even almost doing everything themselves, right? Wearing all the hats. But but at 10, you can't, right? At that point, you really got to build a management team. And that's 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 where it's a challenge because even if you're a great interviewer, you have to decide what type of person and from where should they come from that'll take you from where you are to where you want to be. They're willing to do it. Because people think, oh, you just pay. You just got to pay and you'll get the talent. Wrong. Wrong. In fact, that could be the opposite. I can, If I'm paying someone too much money, they're not going to want to do the stuff that needs to be done at that level. So then I have to find that individual that maybe they're at a stage in their career where they don't really care so much. Well, you know, they're not worried so much about the salary. It's more the opportunity. It's more what their day is like. Maybe they want to build something. Maybe at that point, they never had a shot at equity. Maybe they'd be more intrigued with equity. Like that's, that's the challenge in hiring your management team. Cause it's not a matter of, oh, I'm a $10 million company. Now, now I got to go myself a real solid VP of marketing. I got to go find someone from a big, you know, fortune 100. No, <laughs> even if you can afford that person, what do you think that person is going to do? You go get, go get a CMO from a fortune 100 company, go to your $10 million entrepreneurial company. There's nothing that person is going to do for you. What are they going to do? Put together a $20 billion budget for marketing. Like what are they going to do for you? <laughs> like, you have yeah. to know where you are in your evolution cycle and what type of people to come in. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's what's really challenging. And that's where I don't even know that recruiters can help you. I think you just got to know, you've, you've got to realize you've you got to have that tack, that knack. And I think that's what holds up a lot of companies from growing. And then obviously when companies are just really, really well funded, they can, they have money to make the mistakes, you know, so that's a little bit different, but when you don't have that, then you can't make a bunch of mistakes because that's what sinks you. Every time I look at companies, Simon, that you know, I look at a lot of companies to acquire or to help or coach or mentor. Almost every time the problem is 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 the salaries are just and the people are off. Not that they're yeah. not good people necessarily, but that's where businesses really. Or you know, I think yes, you get the guys that like the big fancy offices and stuff like that, but that can be fixed relatively quickly. But when you just got wrong pay structures everywhere and the wrong type of people. And then you become close to them, especially an entrepreneurial company, you got 20, 30 employees, you're like family. It's not easy to just slash and burn and start cutting people like your friends even, you know? So that's, that's what can really, uh, really, uh, you know, kill the business in my opinion, from my experience, what I observed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think conversely too, is that, that I, I'd suggest that maybe a lot of people who don't achieve the kind of growth that you've achieved, I think a lot of people stumble at the idea of employing too. Like they they see all these things that can go wrong and it could cost them and they fail to pull the trigger and, and take a chance yeah. as well, right? So Yes. Good point. Yeah. So, so tell me, so with, the, with the Nunciate, so, you know, fast forward a little bit here, but you're, um, you know, you've fast five years of amazing growth. Gosh, it must have been an exciting ride. At what point did you start thinking about exit? Like, how did all that come about? 
So I didn't, and I didn't want to sell the company. Um, but uh, there was a, uh, I guess at the time, one of the largest, maybe top top three for sure, uh, publicly traded uh, company based in Atlanta. And uh, they had, I guess, um, a team, like an acquisition team. They're out there making acquisitions. So I, you know, started calling me, started courting me, came up to Toronto, took me to a fancy restaurant and, um, you know, just wanted to learn about my business. I figured, okay, I'm not interested in selling. I told him right away. And he's like, oh, no, don't worry. You know, just, just want to meet you. You never know. You know, things can change. I'm like, yeah, that's prudent. That's, that, you know, that's fine. I can spare a lunch with, with this uh, individual. And he just kept. I mean, he was really good at what he did. I learned a lot about making acquisitions based on how he handled me. Just started planting seeds, planting seeds, stroke my ego. And then at one point, I think second or third meeting, every three to six months, he, he would come and see me. And he said, so, okay, because I gave him kind of the numbers. And he says, well, tell me again, then why you wouldn't want to put $30 million in your, in your pocket? I said, 30 million. <laughs> is, is that what it's worth? <laughs> I, I had my head down. I'm not, I'm not thinking about what the, I mean, you kind of do once in a while, but not really. Right. Like I'm just putting my head down, build my business. And when he said that, that got me like, Oh, okay. But it was even then like, no, 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 no. I'm growing it. I'm going to grow it. But the problem is once you start planting seeds like that, especially once they put it in writing, when they actually sent me the LOI, then it became real. And anyone at seven, I tell anyone say, Oh, this guy won't sell. This person won't sell. Put it in writing. Now, all of a sudden, they're thinking about it, especially if they mention it to their spouse or, or if they have partners. Because yeah. here's what happens. Here's what happens. When everything's great, fine. But have a bad day. Lose a big, big client. Oh, get a call from a lawyer or someone suing you. Or, oh, the banker's you know, not liking the numbers and you know, they want you to sign a person, whatever it might be. Now, all of a sudden... Okay, call that guy that wanted to buy the business. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that number's looking good. <laughs> yeah. That's what happened. It just, it start, they planted a seed that did it right. And it just started to, uh, so, so the bad days became really bad because then anytime it was really bad, I'm like, oh, forget this. I might as well just sell. Let me, you know, let me, let, like, why risk everything? Because that was my first business. All my wealth was really tied up in the company, really, you know? So, um, and now you're getting 30 and now I'm expecting your first, I was expecting my first. Yeah. So my, my daughter was born the month before I sold, actually closed the deal. Oh, wow. So, you know, <laughs> so we get pregnant and all that, you know, so you start thinking about, you know, in my case though, I still think I wouldn't have sold the business. I think for me, the fact that we had started the other companies and I realized that, Hey, okay, I can roll into something else. Cause, and I still, I still mourned it. I still really struggled with selling the company. Because it was my baby. It was really the only company that I ran. And, I, and I, I'm really proud of what I, d I did. And uh, yeah, no, I remember the first holiday party at, when the new owners were kind of there. Like I, and I remember weeping um, that night, you know, essentially weeping, um, saying, what have I done? You know, I sold my baby. Yeah, the bank account helps and all that, but not really, you know, because like, you're still making money. If you have a business that's making money. And you sell it for five or six times earnings, you know, as long as you're young and the business prospects are good, it's almost like the Warren Buffett, the buy and hold. Why sell it? Right. I mean, you're, all you're going to do is look for other cash flow unless you're just tired or you want to invest somewhere else. Or, so, you know, you can't look back because, you know, obviously I built the Wish Group and we you know, got a whole bunch of other companies, which is awesome. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, it was hard. It was emotional. Yeah. And, that, isn't that, and I think that's a really great point to share. I mean, I, th I think... You know, I think a lot of people probably get to that situation where they have to exit and, and maybe they're not in such a great position either. So they can, you know, it can be quite distressing for some people. But, um, but yeah, look, I, mean, I think, I think your, your situation is a good one too in that, you, you know, I like Dan Pink, you know, he talks a lot about human motivation and, you know, money, money's a motivator to a point, right? But, but after that, it's actually other stuff that, uh, yeah. you know, starts to matter a lot more. So, um so yeah, that's curious. And and so this guy's come along. He's um he's clearly good at his job. I mean, nobody's obviously holding a gun to your head, right? He's just keeps planting the seed and keeps following you up. And fr from the moment that you sort of, I guess, got serious about it, what did, how long did the process take to you know go through the deal and the due diligence and all that sort of stuff before you finally kind of got a check? A year. It was a good year. Yeah. Yeah, I I find any kind of. From my experience now going through, you know, a few of them, um, 
if it's sizable, you know, um, that it's, it's, you got to bank on a year, just, just getting things in order and the diligence and, you know, and all that. And, the, you know, the back and forth and the negotiations and all will fly down there and then they fly up here and get this, you know, get all the finance people and lawyers and, you know, back and forth on the, on the, on the purchase agreement, you know, 50 times. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, did you have a bit of a deal team around you? Like who, who was involved in yeah. the transaction from your end? Yeah, no, we did. We had, um, I mean, we had a, the whole finance team, really five, six people getting all the stuff plus the, the, you know, the, the legal, um, and accountants as well, you know, just even from my personal, you know, the whole trust and how we structure it and, um, and the lawyers turning it back. No, it, it was, uh, you know, and, and you're still trying to run the company cause you don't know for sure if the deal is going to close. So you can't, this is the other trick, right? You can't, you can't let up. You gotta, you gotta stay focused on growing the business because you know that, uh Oh, if there's any dip, they're going to notice because <laughs> every month they want, you know, from, from when you sign the letter of intent to you close every you're you're sharing everything, right? They're seeing the financials. They want to continue to see growth. Um, if you lose an account, they'll notice they'll want to adjust the price, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's not easy going through the sales process is, uh, you know, is definitely not, not easy. Um, I think it's easier if you're buying another company, right? Because you're still building your business and you're excited about, you know, picking one up. But when you're selling, that's a different because you want to manage, you, want, you don't want all the employees to find out because you're afraid they're going to start walking out or panicking. So there's a secret nature to everything you're doing. It's it's not a it's not a fun time. It's a stressful process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. And and people get deal fatigue, right? You just get tired. You get over it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and I, for what it's worth, I agree with you completely about the buy side. I mean, you know, you you sold to a large corporate. I mean, large corporates have got people whose sole job it is to go and find deals and do them right. Like, whereas I think when you're the owner, <laughs> it's uh, you, you've suddenly got an extra hat to wear, and it's um, yeah. Did, did did you find it, it? So did it suck a lot of time for you, or did you did your deal team take the brunt of it, or what did that look like for you? Well, it did. I mean, even though, you know, the, fi- the, 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 like the finance people were definitely like full days, like really getting all the diligence and accessing it. But, you know, I, I'm still being brought into meetings, right? So I'm, I'm dealing with lawyers and accountants uh, versus uh, you're going to see clients and dealing with the team and the management team. So, um, you know, then the management team finds out and then they start panicking. What's it going to look like? Well, am I going to have a job? And it's like, oh, now I got to manage that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to try to make everybody comfortable that don't worry, I got your back. No, they're going to keep us all. They really want us all, you know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the the circus spinning the plates, right? (laughs) Yeah. You got to just say, oh, there's one missing. I got to speed that one up and just keep keep it all moving. It's, um, yeah, it's quite the uh, the performance. So, I mean, in our case, we just, you know, we were approached and and we sold, you know, in hindsight, maybe the one thing I maybe would have done. Although, you know, you hire a, a business broker, then you're obviously paying a fee and, and who knows if they, you know, sometimes they can hurt more than help. But, but there's, you know, that there is value, I think, if you know you're ready to, to hire a company to properly market the business and take a lot of that from you. Like on the buy side, I was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to, um, in some cases, in a lot of cases, we did it all on our own, but, you know, have a firm that does all that for you. And it's, you know, you pay for it, but it's, it's a nice luxury to have. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious because you're, you're a, an interesting case. I've had lots of guests on this show who got the kind of proverbial tap on the shoulder and then got taken down this sort of nine to 12 month process of, you know, kind of opening the kimono, giving up so much time, you know, ultimately it cost them a lot of money and and then the deal fell over. Um, and, and often in many cases, because either the buyer just, you know, after nine to 12 months just started lowballing them or they just simply had a change in corporate strategy and they said, oh, no, we're going in a different direction. We're not going to do this anymore. And so, you know, people are obviously devastated. They're amazingly frustrated. And so in the end, we've we've picked up clients at Exit Advisory because they've said, look, I've, you know, I've done this a couple of times even with buyers and it just doesn't work. And And I guess one thing that we've sort of seen is in many cases, they kind of just got put through the buyer's process as opposed to putting buyers through their process. Um, and I guess that's a little bit of a difference of going out to the market proactively saying, well, we want to sell this versus actually, I don't want to sell and you're, you're kind of approaching me playing these seeds. But it's, um, I just think it's, it's interesting that, you know, you made it work with this approach. 
But was there any time through that process where you started getting nervous about sharing information or that, you know, that what if this doesn't work out? Like how much have I given away sort of in this, in this process? Yeah. I mean, I think with, with us, I mean, you know, we didn't disclose any, any client names. I don't remember what we did with employees and, and that sort of thing, but no, I mean, we, we definitely was always a concern of whether they can pull out now because I was so unsure I at least told myself psychologically, you know, to be prepared, thinking, you know what, if they walk away, great. If they close, great. I think that's the where you want to be. You know, when you're desperate to sell, it's not good. Um, you know, that's usually where you make a mistake or you'll accept, you know, if someone wants to, wants to, you know, adjust the price. Um, although we did have a blip as well towards the end where things, they went cold. And, but it was really at the end is what's going on. And uh, yeah, they, they knew that I wasn't going to accept. Uh, anything less than what was in the LOI, but we did uh, lose a client, you know, a sizable account enough to make a difference. And uh, at first I didn't know. One thing that was interesting with these guys is because they were so good at what they did and they had, well, not only so good, they had a big team. Cause like you said, that's what they did. They had a whole team. That's what they did is went out and they made acquisitions. They were a publicly traded company and you know, they were creative to do all these deals. They knew more about my business than I did. <laughs> Like yeah. they were noticing trends that that's actually what scared me. Not scared me, but that's where I got to the point where I'm saying, hey, you know what? I'm a pretty big company now. And there are things that these guys know how to track and they understand even how they forecast. Or we were still forecasting a little bit of gut feel. Hey, what are the salespeople telling you? These guys didn't forecast based on what salespeople were telling them. You know, they they had it down to a science that it got me. A, and, and we were starting to they were showing us some churn. Even though we had our own trend analysis and stuff, but they the way they they analyzed the business, it almost scared me. Not scared me. I mean, I, I'm sure I would have adapted had I not sold. But it but it, it got me to the point realizing that hey, I'm not just growth now. Now I'm getting to the point where you know I'm the target. People are coming after my accounts. It wasn't me because you know the first three four years you don't really have that many accounts. You're you're the one taking business away from your big competitors. But now those little upstarts coming after me. So, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was, uh, it was enough to just make me realize that, Hey, you know what, I've got other ventures on the go. Maybe, maybe it really wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of cash in the chips here. And that way, what, what intrigued me most about moving forward, cause you know, I knew that, uh, you know, when I sold the company, I was 32. So I knew I still had a long journey. Um, it would be nice to be able to write my own checks, you know, and, um, and fund businesses myself if I, if I chose to. and. Um, you know, and obviously have that success, you know, to reference and, and experience to go forward. So, so that, that was all really, really good. And, and it worked out really well for uh, my partner, Tony, he had ended up using his proceeds to help buy a com big company called Yak. And then that got him to, to the point where they were able to uh, become a new wireless entrant in the Canadian market. And uh, so that, that really uh, was a big win for him. And same thing with my original partner that was 16 years older than me, because we had bought his shares a couple of years earlier and he moved, he, he had a lifelong um, kind of his passion or goal was to move to Australia and surf with the sun every day. And he did that. And he started a company in Australia that did very well. So it all really, really worked out. And then one of my key guys, uh, my director of sales from Enunciate because of people source, you know, that, that staffing company started to do really well. And then we'd sold Enunciate and, you know, he wasn't as passionate about Enunciate anymore when it, you know, being a big company. So he joined people source and really helped that company grow. So you know, and then one of my main guys started the streaming network, and now we're the largest uh, webinar company in Canada. And that all started on the heels of Enunciate as well. So everything worked out uh, in the end. Yeah, nice, nice. And we got back into business as soon as the non-compete expired. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I did notice that actually. So you've got Wishtel, right? Is that is that right? Well, we, yeah. Well, we got, well, we got Wish Collaboration, which is uh, audio conferencing, and I bought. We're you know we bought most of our competitors, and we're about to buy a few more now. So. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, you come full circle. So, is that that's your focus going forward? I presume. Well, you know, we, we always looking for some for something new. But what what we did, we're, we've you know we kind of had a bunch of different industries, but now we're really focused in on uh, on human resources. I mean, fortunately, our you know what we've done in in on the staffing industry has been quite exceptional too. I mean, we've I don't th I don't think there's very many people that have uh, scaled and grown um, as many companies as we have in the staffing space, um, as quickly as we have, um, our special healthcare com uh, staffing company is one of the largest in the country. It's only, it's not even two years old yet. It's exceptional what we've done. 
Um, we did incredibly well through the, uh, through the pandemic just because we were positioned really well being an e-com. Um, so we want to continue to grow our staffing companies in the collaboration space. We, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, we've, we, uh, we're, we're the largest, uh, webinar, uh, provider in the country and, uh, we're about to expand, uh, you know, globally, basically with a big merge that we're doing and, uh, audio conferencing is kind of, uh, you know, it's obviously past <laughs> it way past its prime. But there's a lot of people that are in their 60s or bigger companies that just want to exit the space. So, you know, it's a it's a dying business, but um, we're consolidating that as well. Even that traditional um, audio conferencing space, because the clients are still valuable. And and because we're into so many different businesses, we can cross sell, upsell um, and we've got the infrastructure. So it, it's accretive and uh, we're enjoying um, the, the world of digital marketing as well it's obviously populated space as well all of our businesses are very populated we don't do anything i'm not an inventor you know we, we're, we're in mature businesses but we find a way um you know to be leaders in that space and um you know if you got the scale and you've got the shared we have the shared resource model where we got a strong you know cfo and a finance team and marketing and a real strong sales engine that we could basically expand that throughout all the different operating businesses. As long as we've got an operator who's willing to learn and focus, um, he's going to be very well supported. And um, so that model is working. But yeah, obviously, we're always looking for the latest and greatest or something new that we could really um, leverage. Because the real, I think the real secret sauce with us now being Wish Group is that we've got you know several thousand clients between all the operating businesses. So all the clients know that we're a diversified group. Um, still small enough to care, especially each of the operating businesses. They're all still, you know, they're large enough to service, and but we're still small enough to care. Yeah, it it works. You know, like I I enjoy still. You know, I I used to have you know desire to have thousands and thousands of employees and multi billion dollars. I I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe I'm getting older now. <laughs> I'm getting close to the big to the big five zero and. Uh, really enjoying, you know, spending time with my kids and lifestyle. And uh, I, I don't know, I just, there's, there's a comfort zone too. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm still driven. I still want to obviously grow the businesses, not, not to say that we don't, um, but it's growth for the sake of growth. Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Where it's not, it's not fueled by ego like it was when I was younger, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. There is an organism that just grows for the sake of growing and it's called cancer. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's funny cause we talk a lot about exit planning with our clients and, and at some point, you know, we end up circling around the question of, well, how much, how much wealth is enough? You know, like what, what is it they're actually trying to do? Because like, what, what do you want for your life? That's, that's the key thing here is, you know, and how do you spend your most valuable resource, which is your time? So it's, um, so yeah, I, I find there's an inflection point for a lot of entrepreneurs to say, actually. There's a, you know, the law of diminishing returns. I might actually make more wealth, but the cost of that wealth is too high. Yes. So, um, so yeah, you know, Frank, I'm, I'm, I love your story and I'm, I'm, I might have to get you back on the show to do an episode about uh, growth via acquisition and what that looks like for you guys. Cause I just, I think you, you've, uh, I could tell you've got a lot of good stories there that, um, that no doubt people would love to hear about. Well, I'd love to. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, I, you know, Frank, um, I'd like to ask a, a question. Um, um, and really, you know, I don't know if you've got one or maybe a couple of quick tips on on people who are looking for fast growth and looking to scale and, and do the sort of stuff that you've done. Um, before I, I get to that question, I'm sort of putting you on the spot a little bit. But are, are you are you happy for people to reach out and connect and and stuff like that? Absolutely. You know, um, I'm always. I'm always willing to uh, uh, take a call uh, or even just, you know, even messages on, on uh, social media or what have you, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, any, t- any entrepreneur, it doesn't have to be someone running a, a big company. Sometimes it could be a sole proprietor. Um, you know, I've, I've got a few things that I've done to, you know, the bootstrap is a, a series of, uh, of videos that I did, which is some, you know, kind of interviewing me with some you know, challenges and how to handle bank and how to bootstrap, basically how to bootstrap your business. There's a lot of stuff out there on, you know, tech and raising multiple rounds of capital. So that's not my thing. My thing is, Hey, you got a few bucks. You want to start a company? Um, how do we actually get it to scale? And just. Simon, just from my experience, obviously there's a lot of companies and you see in them now, especially in Canada, a bunch of uh, IPOs lately. 
um, for Canadian companies. And, you know, a lot of these companies are still not even profitable in multiple rounds of finance. So that works, but maybe the founders got, you know, almost next to no equity left. In my experiences, the companies that really make it, they just, they get, they figure it out how to grow organically. I'm not saying you take it to the promised land. I'm not saying you have to grow organically forever, but you've got to, I believe you got to get that figured out, you know, before you just throw more and more money at it. Cause yes, there's, a, there's a lot of examples of the companies that have raised lots of money and became very successful, but there's a whole bunch that, you know, went bankrupt, you know, and, um, and, 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 and sometimes the CEO of the, of, the, of the company wants all this infrastructure before he's even real or they're will, really willing to be able to roll up their sleeves and drive that the sales of the company. You know, so sometimes fast growth just for the sake of fast growth. I'm not, it depends on the industry. Obviously, if you really got to kind of get in the space and dominate the market, that's different. I guess maybe because I'm in more mature businesses, it's a, my perspective is a bit different. But, you know, but I really do for anyone who reaches out, I really do like to provide uh, tips on, on from my experiences that uh, enabled us to grow companies very quickly um, with very little capital. That's my, that's my specialty. If there is one that I, you know, that I think that I'm, I'm proud of. And I think that I, that differentiates me from, from a lot of the fabulous entrepreneurs that are out there. Yeah, that's cool. Um, for anyone listening, if you do reach out to Frank on LinkedIn or whatever it might be, maybe just send him a connection with a note saying maybe you heard him on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast so he has a little context as to maybe why you're reaching out. Um, you know, Frank, I think you've, you've almost given us your tip there in terms of, you know, grow a business organically. How do, cash is king, right? <laughs> you know, if you can get that thing making money and you can grow from your own cash flows, um, geez, what an empowering position to be in. And as you said before, I mean, you're not, you're not giving up all your equity. It's, um, you know, okay, great. You might have, if you've got 5% of a billion dollar company, you're still going to be a wealthy person. But geez, um, you may not have to get that big to, to achieve a lot more for your own life. If you maybe want to end on that, Simon, because, you know, there's one thing that I've, I've often heard, especially when people want to acquire you or, you know, they want you to, to they want to invest in your company. They say, well, you know, wouldn't you rather have a, a small piece of a much bigger pie, you know, or all, like what you just said, right? Oh, my God, yeah, 5% of a billion company. Wow, you're worth $50 million. Yeah, but if I own 100% of a $100 million company, I have a lot less headaches <laughs> and I can do what I want when I want. And it's all mine. Yeah. So that's a personal choice. I'm more of the I'm more of the big piece of a small pie guy. It's just me. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because for me, uh, a company is more than just where you earn money. And again, there's two there's two trains of thought there. I've been to seminars and I've gotten you know people's advice where they say you don't want an emotional connection to your company. But then I've had great chats with amazing entrepreneurs like Brian Scudamore, one hundred got jump comes to mind. Recently, where his his thoughts more like me. He's like, no, no, no. How can you build a, build a business if you, unless you are completely emotionally a- attached to it? <laughs> you know, so not every entrepreneur is the same. Not, a, you know, what, what they're looking to get out of their business is the same. There is no right or wrong. You've got to, I think the wisdom comes into, uh, you know, determining what type of lifestyle you want because people say, well, do you work? Are you retired? I'm like, I both. I'm, I'm retired and I'm working every day, I, you know, because, I could be on a golf course and I'm thinking about my company. So in my opinion, I'm, 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 I mean, I shouldn't be because that's hurting my golf score. But, um, <laughs> but uh, whether I'm on a beach or whether I'm on the boat fishing or in the golf, I'm, I'm, I'm still always working on my business. And for me, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful way to live my life because I could, I could be retired and spend time with my children, but also continually building a business. So um, in my case, you know, that, that's, that works for me. For other people, you know, they want to be public and they want to, you know, it's all about maximizing their their worth. And there's no right or wrong. It's just a matter of what, uh, you know, between you and your family and your goals and how you want to live your life. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's amazing advice. And it comes around to, you know, what, what do you what do you want for your life? And, and I think stress testing some of that. But, you know, I think, you know, most entrepreneurs, I think, go into business. Well, I think a lot of us look back on things and think, you know, ultimately it's about freedom, right? And I, I love the term that you just said before, I can do what I want when I want. And to me, that's the ultimate freedom of life. That's the word. That's the word. You know, when I really thought about building a business, it was that. It was freedom. You know, it's just the one thing. I mean, I, listen, I enjoyed my time working. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing that uh, I didn't like was not having freedom, you know. <laughs> 
if I was on a vacation and I wanted to stay longer, I kind of couldn't. You know, I had the vacation days were used up. I got to get back home where now it's a little different. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Frank, I, I could talk to you all day, but I'm, I'm, I know that you've got a, a other things to do and, and a life to lead. So, But I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You've shared so many insights today. I, I just know that people listening to this will, will work away with so much value. Um, so I'm really grateful. I, I thank, thanks for giving us your time. Uh, thank you for having me. It was a, it was a real great conversation. I'm leaving this very uh, energized and inspired. Thank you so much. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.